Hello and a very warm welcome to a new episode of World Build, brought to you by World Architecture News from Alison and Nav. In today's episode, we speak to Eugene Flotteren and Alison Anderson about designing climate resilient buildings and transport following the devastating impacts of hurricanes Katrina and Sandy in the US. And we also find out how green roofs can anchor homes. Eugene is Principal and Director of Architecture at Cetra Ruddy, where he oversees the firm's architects and interior designers and applies his technical understanding of the built environment to a wide range of projects. Alison is the founder of Unabridged Architecture, a firm recognised for projects that are defensible against climate challenges. But before we begin, I just want to let you know that the 2022 WAN Awards and WIN Awards are now open for entries. Last year, we saw a record number of entries come in and many outstanding projects recognised by the International Judging Panel. Entering is a really good way of promoting work. So for more information, please click through to wanawards.com and worldinteriorsnewsawards.com. And today we have resident transporter Hannah back in the studio with us. She's telling us all about technology and the smart home device trends we expect to see in the next 12 months. Technology already plays a fundamental role in the smooth running of our interiors, from automated heating systems to motion sensor lights in the bathroom. In 2022, however, smart devices are set to wield an even greater influence. Innovations that we expect to see include chairs and desks that remind you when to stand up, multifunctional charging stations for mobile devices, and smart lighting and blind systems that adjust room brightness according to the time of day or work discipline underway. This technology has both environmental and well-being benefits because it can be implemented in adaptive reuse projects as well as new builds. And because systems which regulate air quality and humidity are proven to improve people's concentration and ultimately their productivity levels. To read stories about high-tech interiors, see An Office Tower with a Subtropical Park in the Sky by Route A. ADAS leads largest urban renewal project in Shenzhen, China. And Nordic wins interior design competition for river-inspired Chinese airport terminal. So welcome both. Thank you very much for coming in to talk to Nav and I today. We're looking at climate-ready architecture this week, which is a term that I think may mean different things to different people in different countries and climates. So perhaps if I could come to you first, Alison, can you explain what you think climate-ready architecture is? Thank you so much for inviting me. I am from Bay St. Louis, Mississippi. It's a very small town on the northern edge of the Gulf Coast. And we really came to this sort of climate-ready realization after Hurricane Katrina, which came in, it, it made landfall in our community, 
and really devastated a lot of our work. And that was kind of a wake-up call for us because we had been thinking we were being oh-so-sustainable, and yet we weren't really prepared for the kind of climate that we were heading into. Hurricanes really shape what and where we build. So July 2005, we finished a brand new house on high ground, what we considered to be high ground, and it was gone. We had eight feet of water in it five weeks later. And so we really started thinking about the long term, and that's where we encourage our clients to think long term, to start by determining that anticipated service life of the project and thinking about how long they want that project to to exist in that location. So many of our clients, which are institutions or municipalities, they expect to own and operate a facility for 75 or 100 years, and they need a building that supports their mission over that time period without experiencing serious interruptions or damage, that kind of thing. And so we really have to look at what the potential for change is over that period, whether it's higher temperatures or greater flooding or increased rainfall. And we have to plan for it. We also look at the kind of wider community and the potential for cascading consequences. But ultimately, a climate-ready building is measured by actual climate performance. Did it withstand that design basis event? Did the event exceed the basis of design you were designing for? Were there mitigating or exacerbating factors? Like in Katrina, New Orleans would have been fine if the levees hadn't failed. And then could the project continue operations without interruptions? Or did it provide other vital functions after the storm? We're all sort of engaged in designing these incremental changes to the built environment that support the human mission, which is safety, productivity, comfort. But these incremental changes, they're not keeping pace with the accelerating climate and disaster impacts. So my firm and me personally, I'm from New York City proper. I live just outside the city in Staten Island. Our firm is based in Manhattan. Most of our projects are multifamily residential type projects. As an architect, climate is always a key factor in planning, but this accelerated climate disaster response. And for here in New York, Sandy was a big catalyst to kind of move the needle on the conversation and get the legislation to start to really move quicker. Everyone was so affected locally by that specific storm event. Eugene, how do you go about researching what you need to take into account? A series of information and organizations on the subject at large, you know, in New York City, we're dealing with the specific code and ordinance, and we work with a lot of um, specialty consultants when it comes to facades and systems. It starts with some basic architectural principles, you know, the passive principles, the things that don't really cost more, which is like just how you orient the building, you know, to either accept or kind of respond to the sun, depending on the climate. Our climate is a constant changing climate. We're seasonal. We go from extreme cold weather to extreme warm weather. So we have to kind of design a building to handle the gamut of that change to reduce the energy consumption and the resiliency of the project, to reduce the amount of heat and heat load and gain and the cooling requirements. And we're doing all kinds of passive and then active systems to deal with this. With the rising sea level, I mean, the proactive approach and the codes, it's it's amazing how quickly it's changing because You know, the new code here in New York is coming out in November 
and it's actually going to require the baseline resiliency on flooding to go up another foot where it was last year. So projects we did two years ago or even last year, the requirement for you know a flood event has now gone up a foot. So that's that's really quick change. And if you look at a life cycle of a building and there's all kinds of information and there's guidelines that are yet to turn into law about rising sea levels, if you're looking to look 50 years or 100 in the future, you need to plan for another like you know 30 to 40 inches higher than that. And so we're having conversations with our clients from day one about, okay, here's where we are today to respond to code requirements and a flood event. But if we really want to be proactive, we really want to keep your building up and running for a future event, we have to look further ahead. I think it's a myth that we can't anticipate the future. There remains this kind of perception in the profession, even, that we don't understand what these coming climate challenges are going to be. It's not right. We increasingly have downscaled climate information for every region that gives us enough detail for the architects, wherever they work. I can't say I've ever done a project with a facade consultant, but I can say that we do have access to the same information about sea level rise and about going beyond code. So we're working on this adaptation planning at multiple scales, whether it's the individual building or communities. And that adaptation planning means we don't have to do it all at once. It's not all or nothing. It's a plan for incremental changes over time. So for example, in new construction, adaptation asks if a project can be improved over its entire service life to meet those anticipated challenges. And that's you know structural material choices, but also programming decisions. Is this project flexible enough to accommodate new functions? If the neighborhood changes, that's an economic change you can expect, which could be tied to climate or not. Can it be expanded to meet new demands or can it be disassembled to retreat from a high-risk location? So at the community scale, I think cities like New York City are way ahead of the curve. They're thinking about preparing to retreat from these high-risk areas as well as armoring certain edges that protects its citizens from inside. But other places are looking at hazard overlay zones, which incrementally shift new development to more suitable areas. Um, We work with the AIA, with universities, with FEMA, to sort of write and illustrate and communicate these ideas to practitioners and to the public to raise this awareness and share these solutions that aren't just doomsday scenarios, but they offer a kind of hope and a vision for the future. Thank you. What geographical elements do you need to consider in Mississippi? It really depends where you are. Most of the communities we work in, from the Gulf Coast up to the Northeast, experience flooding. I would say flooding is the most common, the most severe hazard. Around 30% of the world population lives in a one in a hundred year floodplain. So, you know, if you think about it, 10% of those people can expect inundation within a decade, and over 50% can expect it in their lifetime. So it's going to start hitting all of us more and more. It isn't just a coastal problem. Flooding from inland rivers and streams is increasing. And that's basically because of the floodplain is constantly expanding, but also because there's more impervious surfaces upstream, as well as higher precipitation and sea level rise. I'm in the center of Manhattan. There are different issues. Climate in terms of weather is always the main issue, no matter where you are, but seawater, which is 
really a hot topic is at the edges of the city, a little bit different strategy and a a lot more of a a design priority. In a city base, half of our work, I would say, is in the adaptive reuse, which is probably the most resilient, sustainable thing you could do by not knocking this building down and, and filling up a landfill, but rebuilding and all the energy it takes and all the materials it takes to rebuild it. How do you adapt and repurpose uh, these buildings, you know, in the middle of the city and on the edge of the city that may flow into these flood zones. So there's all kinds of things that you could do. I mean, very simple on on the edges and in the areas where water is going to be an issue, we're raising everything. All the mechanicals automatically going up beyond the first floor to the second floor. The second floor is much more future-proof than even trying to get anywhere near with just getting it out of its own. That's what keeps your building up and running in an emergency situation. And, and then how do we get people you know, in and out of the buildings and, and what we can do to, to deal with that? But when we work in the city, you know, we're very tight and constrained with the property size and the bulk requirements. So we're right onto property edges. When we work outside of the city, you know, we have more site to work with and that gives you more opportunity to create design features to help you deal with the elevated condition and how to solve that in a very community-based way. Um, our lifeline of New York City really is the ground floor. It's kind of where everyone lives and thrives. But as everything rises, there's a need to elevate. And so I think we have to work on a next elevation of public space that isn't just the ground floor. And where you're outside of the city, where you can raise your site and kind of do a gradual connection, you have more opportunity to deal with that creatively with setting the building back. And talking about cost. What are the cost implications of making a building climate ready? Does it cost a lot? And if, if so, where are those costs coming in? And I'll, I'll go to Alison first on that one. Well, I think we have to ask how we measure cost. Are we only looking at the initial first cost of a facility? Or are we looking at the long-term cost to operate it? Or an even broader view, measuring the productivity of the facility or the impact on resources? The sustainable architecture movement taught us to not only look at the first cost, but at the return on investment. So, I mean, there are just a whole array of options. If we're just talking about initial cost, um, for example, the cost to install a fortified roof might be $1,500 more a standard roof on a residential project, but the homeowner might receive $100 a year discount on their insurance. So there would be a direct payback of 15 years. And if there's a high wind event during that period and the roof prevents storm damage, we start to think about avoided losses and how we can recoup those over the life of the project. There are other things we can do, sort of looking at the cost of, say, impact-resistant windows for a hurricane zone. It might be 40% more than standard windows, but the cost to install and demount kind of plywood coverings for your windows several times during a season could offset that in five years. So it really depends on the hazard. It depends on how you're looking at the project and how long you're looking at the project. Yeah, I think what Allison said was really key. I think when you talk about costs, you have to look at initial costs and then you have to look at life cycle costs to kind of balance it out. There are definitely things we can do that are cost zero, and that's the passive stuff. That's just how you orient it. You're building, you know, on a site. You know, in the winter months, you want to let, let the sun in to reduce your heating loads. In the summer months, you want to let you know keep the sun out to reduce your air conditioning loads. But we're doing a number of projects now in New York that are passive house certified, 
which is about making the envelope so energy efficient, it actually reduces the size of the mechanical systems needed for heating and cooling and allows for a lot more of these electric systems that are on the market that further are, you know, very green initiatives to reduce, you know, the use of fossil fuels and, and, and projects. And that cost, you know, five or eight years ago for a passive house project on construction used to be about 8% more than the, the starting cost. And now it's down to 3% as it becomes more and more common in the use of these materials. So it's reducing, but then you have to compare life cycle because you're reducing the amount of energy you're using in the building. Eugene, how many of the projects you work on would you say have a climate ready focus? Oh, I, I think it's 100%. I mean, if it's not dealing with sea level rise, which is a, you know, a catastrophic event, you're always dealing with solar orientation and how you deal with that in terms of keeping that energy cost of the buildings down. One of the phenomena I think that's happened uh, helps reduce the heat island effect is, you know, roofs. Roofs in, you know, most of the cities have always been these dark surfaces, whether they were flat or pitched. Now they're, you know, brighter surface, but we're activating with amenities and green space. We are doing these green sedum roofs on almost every project today. Some of it's, it was dictated by code, but before the code even, you know, changed on it, these systems that are out there that have very low maintenance, but create a sedum type green roof as a visual thing, help to reduce the heat island. It helps to deal with a little bit of your water management on site to reduce the amount of storm runoff. And what proportion of projects, Alison, are you working on with a climate ready focus? I guess it's probably all of them. To one degree or another, all of them do have a climate ready focus. And that might be because we're raising a structure for future floods or improving the building envelope for higher temperatures or planting more vegetation to reduce the urban heat island effect. We're always designing for the next 100 years. So Eugene, you touched on Hurricane Sandy a bit earlier, which hit in 2012. Yeah. How did the effects of that impact the way that you and other architects in New York in particular design? It, ex it just accelerated the whole uh, process. I mean, so much legislation came out. All of us architects kind of were immediately affected. All of our communities were immediately affected. So it put it front and center as like on a very important topic that there's no longer a conversation. It's actually happened. It was like immediate to get involved and get active and, and think about how we're going to future proof. And there are some major city initiatives that happened and everybody was affected, you know, one way or another. If you lived in the middle of the city, you lost your power. Like how do you keep the power and the building services running and how do you deal with that? You know, if you lived outside of the city, you know, your house could have been flooded and taken away. So how do we raise and create structures you know, that would never let that happen again, where the water can come in, recede, and your home and your safety was, you would be safe. And as a result of the hurricane, subway lines in the city suffered from saltwater damage, which caused the tunnel walls to crumble and cables to corrode. What solution is there for underground transport methods now to make them more resilient to climate issues? The subways underground in lower Manhattan, I think, has something like, you know, 60 or 70 percent of all the subway lines go through lower Manhattan, which is going to be prone to flooding. So one big project is to really raise the edge of Manhattan. There's a project out there called the Big U the city's trying to implement. That's a city program of creating an elevated edge, you know, of open space, developable space, new additional land as one way. Because either you're going to elevate or you're going to try to block. I mean, your two main choices are. So in, in Jersey, they're trying to create a wall that would go in place that would slide closed on the street areas. And, and a lot of 
design opportunities of how to make that aesthetically pleasing. And then there is elevating an edge or, or elevating the transportation. We looked at some transportation, you know, for some a, a master planning study we did in Staten Island as a part of New York City, but a, a kind of from a mass transit point of view, a disconnected borough. And we brought on a transportation consultant who thought of bringing an elevated transportation solution. And there are, since we've done the research on, there are so many elevated aerial transportation companies out there that are looking at projects all over the city to start elevating the transportation off the ground. And one of the first systems that were back in line, you know, after Sandy was the uh, the tram that goes to Roosevelt Island. Thank you, Eugene. And Alison, to come to you now, can you tell us a bit more about the home that you designed for yourself, which you moved into just one month before Hurricane Katrina hit? Did you ever imagine that it would be able to survive that storm? Well, we live on the Gulf Coast. So as I said, hurricanes kind of shape what and where we build. Um, So we had in our minds Hurricane Camille from 1969, which was primarily a windstorm. And it was the worst storm in the community memory. The house on our site had blown over as a result of the wind and been buried on site. But we were on high ground. We were at 20 feet above sea level and a thousand feet from the water's edge. So we thought we were protected. So we designed this building with extra deep wood framed walls and we had a green roof. That ultimately may have been one of the reasons the house still stood after the storm because of the sturdiness of the columns and the weight of that green roof acting as an anchor for the whole house. And the funniest thing was a group of spindly little trees along the south side prevented the house next door from crashing into the side of our house and taking it out completely. So we had friends who had washed out of their house a block away on the beach, and they took shelter under our grass roof because they said it was the only thing that wasn't moving. It was one of maybe three houses still standing after the storm. But some of our other projects didn't fare quite as well. So that was when we started realizing that sustainability wasn't very sustainable unless it was also durable against future climate challenges. And since Katrina, Unabridged Architecture have been responsible for over 25 built projects in the area, including the restoration of historic buildings, new civic buildings and streetscape improvements. What were the most important things that you considered when you were doing these designs? We think about the longevity of our projects. We had just finished, before Katrina, another project. It was a small hotel and retreat center right on the waterfront, and it was completely erased by the storm. So we had designed it to be sustainable, but how sustainable is it if your design doesn't stand up to events? So we think about whether that location is defensible in the long term, and we think about those benefits and costs of building beyond the building code to ensure safety and continuity. And through it all, what has been your favorite project in the area that you have worked on? Good question. One of my favorites was a parking garage. Now, that doesn't sound like an architectural statement, but we really incorporated a lot of adaptation thinking into this project. We salvaged over 85% of the construction waste from the building that had been on site prior to our construction. The new structure was designed to harvest rainwater. It had a solar array to power the lighting. 
It had a green screen of native vegetation to strip particulates from the car's emissions. And it had a three-day supply of backup power. So it became part of the city's emergency operations plan as a place to recharge the public works radios. But it was also designed for vertical expansion. And then the first phase of this has occurred. So we placed a civic center on the top level with views to the waterfront and across the city. The architectural expression, I guess, is very simple. It's tough. It's restrained. It doesn't have any redundant finishes. Local photographers use it as their backdrop for wedding photos and prom pictures. And scout groups use it for roller skating parties on weekends and athletes run the stairs. So it's been adopted by the community in ways we could never have imagined. Thank you very much, Alison and Eugene. I I felt that was really fascinating and also very good to hear from you in real life examples of of where you're living and the fact that you both can see how the climate is affecting your communities, I think adds a certain um, resonance, doesn't it, to to the work you're doing because it's very, very relevant. So thank you very much for your time today. Really appreciate it. I wish you both well. Thank you very much. It's a great pleasure to be with you. Yeah, thank you. It was uh really great to be part of the conversation. We welcome your feedback on the podcast, so please aim all your comments to waneditorial at haymarket.com. You can listen on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts. So follow, download and join us. (laughs) 